Well, good morning, church family. Good to see all of you and greeting to those of you out on the patio and watching online and, um, and uh, watching on demand as well. Um, yeah, I, every week I find someone else that is uh, live streaming with us that I had no idea that they were connecting with us each week. And so uh, ministry is interesting right now. Um, you know, I'll never forget officiating my very first funeral. I wasn't even a real pastor yet. I was a 25-year-old seminary student, and I just started an internship at my home church. And a couple from the young adult group in the church, Anne and Ron, had just had their first baby. And he was born premature with lots of medical problems. Their son never came home from the hospital. And he died at just four and a half months old. And Ron and Ann asked me, an inexperienced seminary student, to officiate their son's funeral. When the day came, I stood in front of Ron and Ann and, and their friends and family at Forest Lawn in Covina, um, wearing a suit that I bought at a thrift store because I didn't have one for a funeral. And I realized I was in way over my head. I don't remember exactly what I said that day, but I do remember in prayer silently begging God to use my clumsy and inadequate words to bring people hope and comfort. Funerals are stark reminders of death and our own mortality. And we're awkward and uneasy around death. People cope with that uneasiness in different ways. Some people make jokes. It's called gallows humor to try to deflect their discomfort thinking about death. Other people get angry. I, I once had someone I'd never met before start screaming at me at a funeral because they thought because I was a pastor, somehow I was a representative of God for them. Some people resort to cliches and platitudes like God must have needed another angel but the truth is, is that most people avoid thinking about death as much as possible. But at a funeral, of course, it's impossible to avoid thinking about death because that's why everyone's there. We're in an eight-week series on the I Am statements of Jesus from the book of John in the Bible. And today we reach the sixth I Am statement when Jesus says, I am the resurrection. Jesus said these words at a funeral when everyone was thinking about death. And today, from the 11th chapter of John, we're going to see four epiphanies, four surprising insights about Jesus that this sixth I am statement reveals to us. So we'll be in John chapter 11, selected verses, and let me start by reading the first seven verses. It says, now there was a man named Lazarus who was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, the sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. 
Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, Jesus stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. Now, at the end of chapter 10 of John, Jesus left the region of Judea because the religious leaders there tried to kill him. And Jesus, knowing that his time to die had not yet come, he slipped out of Judea and was conducting his ministry outside of that region. And as he's engaged in ministry outside the region of Judea, he receives word that his good friend Lazarus is seriously ill. Lazarus and his two sisters, Mary and Martha, all lived together in a small town called Bethany. And Bethany was located, you guessed it, in the region of Judea where people wanted Jesus dead. The text reveals that Jesus shared a special bond with this family in Bethany. And although the sisters asked Jesus to come quickly, as we'll see later, To help their brother, Jesus delays. He waits two days before he even leaves. And people have speculated and wondered why Jesus waited. Was he wrapping up his ministry where he was? Was he weighing the risks and the timing of going back to Judea? John assures us that his delay was not motivated by a lack of love. But the Bible is silent exactly why Jesus delayed. By the time Jesus arrives, Lazarus has died, and he's been dead for four days. Pick it up with me in verse 17. It says, on his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Now, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews, those are people from Jerusalem, had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in their loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to Martha, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, and here's our our I am statement, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come into the world. After Martha had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to Jesus. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. 
When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, Jesus was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, they replied. Jesus wept. Different cultures deal with grief in different ways. Every culture has its own unique practices for mourning a loss. Some cultures are more stoic and silent in showing emotion when someone dies. Other cultures are more expressive with grief, crying and weeping and even wailing at times the loss of a loved one. And ancient Jewish culture was more expressive than probably some of us are accustomed to. Back then, when someone died, the family members of the person who passed away were expected to spend seven days in intense grieving. Those seven days of mourning was considered the funeral. Everything in your life was put on hold. You were excused from all your obligations. And all of your neighbors were expected to join you in those seven days of grieving. When someone died, the, the body would be usually buried quickly. Sometimes the very day the person died, and the body would be washed with perfumes and ointments and then put into the family tomb. And most family tombs back then were caves that would be sealed closed by rocks or a large rock. And then family members and neighbors would visit the tomb each day during those seven days of grieving. By the time Jesus gets to Bethany, Lazarus has already been buried and Martha and Mary are four days into their seven-day grieving period. Now, in Martha and Mary, in this story, we see two very different reactions to loss and grief. When Martha hears that Jesus is coming and that he's close, she runs to meet him. Martha says, that if Jesus had been there, her brother Lazarus would not have died. And if Martha sounds a little bitter, it's probably because she is a little bitter. Jesus responds by telling Martha that her brother Lazarus will rise again. Martha assumes that Jesus is talking about the resurrection at the end of the age. Most Jewish people back then believed that at the end of the age, everyone who had ever died would be raised from the dead. And then after this, what's called a general resurrection, where everyone is raised from the dead, God would judge every person and assign to that person their final destiny, either heaven or hell. And although a couple of Jewish groups denied this teaching, it's taught in the Old Testament, particularly in the book of Daniel and the book of Ezekiel, and Jesus himself taught this idea. So when Jesus says to Martha, your brother will rise again, it's only natural that she would think that he was talking about that future resurrection. That was her doctrine, her theology. It was part of her creed. But then, in verse 25, Jesus gives his sixth I am statement when he says, I am the resurrection and the life. You see, Jesus is guiding Martha from her creed, her theology, to trust in him. It's not that Martha's theology was wrong. There will be a future resurrection. 
But correct theology doesn't do us much good unless it leads us into a personal encounter with Jesus. And notice Jesus pairs the word resurrection with the word life. The word resurrection refers to our physical bodily life being restored. Being resurrected means that our physical bodily functions are restored. Our decomposed bodies are miraculously recomposed. Even bodies that have turned to dust centuries ago or burned up in fire or were lost at sea, God miraculously recomposes them into physical form. But the word Jesus uses for life here is a word that usually refers to spiritual life or eternal life. There, there are two Greek words that are translated life in the New Testament, the word bios and the word zoe. And bios usually refers to our physical, biological life. But zoe usually refers to our spiritual life, eternal life. And that's the word Jesus uses in verse 25. Jesus is saying that he is the source of both physical, bodily resurrection life and spiritual life. And he asks Martha if she believes this. And she says that she does. Mary's response to the loss of her brother Lazarus is very different than Martha's. Whereas Martha ran to Jesus as soon as she heard he was close, Mary waits at home. Martha's first impulse is to move closer to Jesus with all of her questions. Mary's impulse is to wait. And only after Jesus calls for Mary does she go to him. Mary's words to Jesus are the same as her sister's. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even though her words are the same, what she needs from Jesus is actually very different than what Martha needs. Jesus sees her grieving, as well as those around her grieving. And John tells us in verse 33 that Jesus was deeply moved in his spirit. Now, you should know that the Greek word that John uses here in verse 33 usually refers to being moved to anger. Why would Jesus be upset here? Was he upset with death? with the people's lack of faith, with, with the impact the loss of Lazarus was having on people, John doesn't tell us. Verse 33 also says that Jesus was troubled, a word that describes intense inner emotional distress. And then in verse 35, shortest verse in the Bible, John tells us that Jesus wept, adding his own tears to Mary's tears. There are many different aspects to grieving a loss, including waves of anger and waves of sadness. And instead of saying anything, Jesus enters into Mary's grief and shares it with her. Now, skip down to verse 38 through 44. Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave <clears throat> with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, Jesus said. 
But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there will be, there is a bad odor, for he has been there four days. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When Jesus had said this, he called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. And Jesus said, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Mary and Martha lead Jesus to their brother's tomb. And once again, it says that he's deeply moved. Same word that's used in verse 33. Now you can still visit the traditional site of Lazarus' tomb in Israel today. Jesus orders that the stone be moved away. And after praying, he calls Lazarus, the dead man, out of the tomb. And Lazarus emerges alive, wrapped in grave clothes. This is the seventh and final miracle Jesus performs in the book of John. The raising of Lazarus. Now, Lazarus did not raise from the dead immortal like Jesus did on Easter Sunday or like we will um, at the end of the age. The, the resurrection of Lazarus was more like a resuscitation, uh, a restoration of mortal physical life. Lazarus is alive, but he will eventually, <coughs> excuse me, die again. But it reveals that Jesus truly is the resurrection and the life. And so from this sixth I am statement, let me, let me describe four epiphanies, four insights about Jesus. The first one is this. Jesus doesn't always show up when and how we think he should. He doesn't always show up when and how we think he should. Martha and Mary both believe that if Jesus had been with them, that if he had not have delayed, that they would have been spared unnecessary pain and grief. We might even say that Martha and Mary's words reflect a subtle form of prosperity theology because they thought being close to Jesus would exempt them from loss. But the truth is, is that followers of Jesus experience just as much loss in life as those who don't follow Jesus. The presence of Jesus in our lives does not exempt us from going through hard stuff. Now, again, we don't know why Jesus delayed. His timing is not always our timing. His plan does not always line up with our plans. Why didn't Jesus show up differently for Ron and Anne in the birth of their son? Why hasn't Jesus shown up differently during this pandemic the last two years? We can probably all point to situations in our lives and around the world where Jesus didn't show up how we hoped that he would. And John chapter 11 is a call to trust Jesus even when he doesn't show up the way that we want him to. When our expectations aren't met. Ron and Anne were hoping and praying for healing for their son. But that's not what happened. 
Can we still trust Jesus in these situations? Can we still believe that God will somehow be glorified and Jesus can be trusted when he doesn't show up the way we hoped he would? Here's a second epiphany from this chapter. Jesus enters the messiness of our lives. He wades right into the mess. When Jesus came to the world, he fully entered into our humanity. He didn't keep the human race at arm's length. And we see how fully Jesus entered into our lives in this chapter. In verse 3, we're told that Jesus loved Lazarus. In verse 5, that he loved Mary and Martha as well. In verse 33, that he was deeply moved and troubled in spirit. In verse 35, that he wept. In verse 38, that he was deeply moved again. And this is John's way of saying that Jesus fully entered in to the messiness of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus' life because he loved them. And he loves you just as much to enter into the messiness of your life as well. It worries me when Christians try to scrub the messes out of their lives. When we try to hide our problems and struggles in a closet so no one else can see them. When we, when we create the Instagram image that, that we're living our best life and everything looks just perfect. Because no one's life is like that. Our lives are messy. Our relationships and our families are complicated. Our struggles are real. And that's what Jesus enters into. Here's a third epiphany. In that mess, Jesus meets us where we are. He meets us where we are. Even though Jesus doesn't always show up when and how we hope he will, he always shows up. He always shows up. And when he does, he meets us where we are. Mary and Martha responded to their loss of their brother very differently. And John is very careful not to hold up one sister's response as better than or superior to the other sister's response. Martha ran to Jesus and needed to talk theology with Jesus. And sometimes that's what we need. When we're in a crisis, sometimes we run to Jesus with our unanswered questions and our imperfect theology and our unmet expectations. And Jesus speaks to us, not always with the answers that we're looking for, but always with words of truth, words that invite us to trust him. You know, through 31 years of pastoral ministry, <clears throat> I've done more funerals than I've been able to keep track of. And in those tender, vulnerable moments with people, they've shared their questions for Jesus. And although I know my inadequate words are not the same as Jesus' words, I also know that Jesus is present in those conversations. Because we can run to him with our questions and our disappointments. But, but in contrast to Martha, Mary held back. Sometimes we're not quick to run to Jesus. Sometimes we wait because we're paralyzed by our pain. 
unable to will ourselves to run to Jesus. And so, Jesus calls to Mary and invites her to come. And Mary didn't need to have a theological conversation with Jesus like Martha did. She just needed Jesus to be with her, to share her pain, her anger, her sadness, her confusion. And so Jesus wept with her. Jesus meets us where we are. Finally, the fourth epiphany in this text, Jesus is the source of all life. He is the source of all life. He is the resurrection, the source of physical, bodily life. Our assurance that our bodies will survive even after we die. The Bible clearly teaches that we will rise again at the end of the age when Jesus comes again. That our physical bodies will emerge from the grave, immortal, glorified, never to die again. That just as Jesus himself rose from the dead immortal, our bodies will rise as well. And we confess this in the words of the Apostles' Creed when we say, I believe in the resurrection of the body. But Jesus is also the source of spiritual life, eternal life in the here and now. He is the resurrection and he is the life. And when we trust in Jesus, we not only have assurance of future resurrection, but we receive the gift of eternal life in the here and now. Our sins are forgiven. Our relationship with God is restored. We are given the Holy Spirit. We are brought into Jesus' church. He is the source of life. And those who reject Jesus, they'll still be raised from the dead, but their resurrection will be one of judgment for rejecting the love and grace that was offered to them. Those who reject Jesus are cut off from eternal life, still dead in their sins and separated from the abundant life that Jesus calls us to. As I stood in front of Ron and Ann, and their friends and family at Forest Lawn and Covina, there were signs of death everywhere. But as I looked closer, I noticed something that I hadn't noticed at first. Many of Ron's friends and family were covered in prison tattoos. I would later learn that Ron grew up in a family in Montclair that was notorious for its involvement in organized crime. Drugs, prostitution, robberies, guns, you name it, Ron's family was involved in it. And Ron had been involved as well, until as a teenager, a rival street gang saw him walking down the street and shot him multiple times, leaving him to die. And as he recovered from those gunshot wounds, Ron surrendered his life to Jesus and was ultimately able to lead several gang members in his gang and family members to faith in Jesus. And so I realize now that I was surrounded by both death and life in that moment. The painful death of a four and a half month old who never came home from the hospital for reasons that I can't fathom or try to explain. Yet there was life there as well. Lives transformed by Jesus. 
the hope of resurrection, the presence of eternal life that would strengthen and sustain Ron and Anne through the painful valley of grieving the loss of their son. And that spiritual life did sustain them and continues to sustain them nearly over 30 years later. See, because Jesus is the resurrection and the life, we don't have to be afraid or uneasy about death. We don't have to live in fear because we've trusted in the one who has conquered death. And that doesn't mean that we should live recklessly. I'm not going to free solo a hundred foot rock climb without a rope because I'm not afraid to die. And I'm not going to paddle my, my 13 foot kayak to Catalina because I'm, I'm not afraid to die. Living recklessly tests God. But it does mean I don't have to live in dread that death will one day come for me and come for those I care about because I follow the one who is the resurrection and the life who shows up in the biggest messes and meets us where we are and who holds the key to life itself. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this story and this sixth I am statement of Jesus. And Lord, as we come together to worship, we don't come to forget and ignore the painful realities of death and loss. We don't come to pretend that they don't exist. We come and we bring all of that with us and we bring it to you knowing that you are the living God who meets us, even the, mo the most painful of circumstances. God, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.